0: Friends, Welcome to Corbett Report Radio, I'm your host James Corbett of CorbettReport.com and I would direct you one and all to my website as usual, except for the strange fact that my servers are down at the moment and I'm getting no, not much of a response from my server administrators at this point. So I hope you'll all hang on with me as I work out the server errors that are working their way through the system and uh, CorbettReport.com will be back up soon enough, I certainly hope. But for those of you keeping track at home, this week's version of New World Next Week has just been posted to my YouTube and blip channels and is up there at newworldnextweek.com as usual. So you can enjoy that in the meantime and I'll work on getting CorbettReport.com back up. But until then, let's, uh, let's turn to tonight's conversation. And tonight we have a guest that we had back way back, way, way back when this was still a brand new uh, radio show. In the first week of its existence, we talked to Joshua Blakeney of joshuablakeney.info. Well, we have him back on the line tonight to talk about a, a host of issues, including Syria and geopolitics and Canada and many, many other things besides. So, Joshua Blakeney, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for taking the time.
1: It's great to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: Excellent. Well, it has been an awfully long time since we've chatted. It's been about six months, I think. So why don't we just refresh people's memory and tell them a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Uh, yes, I emigrated from the UK to Canada in April 2005. Uh, uh, whereupon I went travelling not long after around the world, so I got to see a bit of the world. But I quickly came back and enrolled in graduate studies or undergraduate studies rather at the University of Lethbridge uh, in Alberta, Canada. Um, I was pursuing an undergraduate degree in sociology. Uh, but when that degree culminated, uh, I graduated with distinction. I, I um, spoke to one of my associates, Professor Anthony. Hall, uh, who teaches Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge, and he and I talked about um, doing some graduate studies uh, where I would explore uh, the events of 9-11 as my main subject matter. And so uh, Professor Hall and I had kind of befriended each other as I was doing my undergraduate studies. Uh, He was uh, kind of looking into 9-11 around the time that I walked into his class uh, in 2007-2008. He was introducing 9-11 skepticism into the curriculum, um, Splitting the Sky, the Mohawk activist who attempted a citizen's arrest on George W. Bush. Uh, he and Professor Hall are good uh, colleagues, good friends, uh, and Splitting the Sky, of course, was uh, in New York City on September 10th and got a, a queasy feeling and decided to go uh, to his Indian territories back up in, uh, in Canada. And it was a good decision because he was in the Marriott Hotel, and he actually had a nice book there on September 11th, 2001, and he So as not to be there, he instantly knew there was something wrong, that that the official story was in some way fraudulent and in fact he claims to have been barred from Concordia campus for proselytizing Um, but he had uh, urged Professor Hall to kind of come off the fence to to not prescribe to the tale we were told within hours of the official story of 9-11 and so to cut a long story short, Professor Hall and I had kind of gone through uh, a revision of our stances on 9-11, we had previously presupposed the veracity of the official conspiracy theory of 9/11 but thereafter uh, you know dealt it with dealt with the official story of 9/11 with more skepticism and so uh, yes yeah, so I believe I'm probably one of the only people in the world who's actually managed to do graduate things kind of fell into place uh, the Dean of Graduate studies is one of my uh, sociology profs I was his top student so he 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 uh, Uh, ascended to the position of Dean of Graduate Studies at the university just as I entered. He's a really nice guy, uh, Professor Wood. Um, And so, lo and and behold, um, in November 20, we're going to a break?
0: Yes, we are. We're right up against the break. Hold on right there. We'll continue with that right after this break. Again, talking to Joshua Blakeney of joshuablakeney.info, and we'll be back right after these messages. welcome back to the program friends here we are on corbett report radio on this thursday night and just a reminder to everyone out there unlike most thursday nights this uh, thursday night edition of the broadcast will not feature james evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com in the second half of the broadcast he's taking a well-deserved week off from this broadcast, but he will be, of course, filling in for me on Thursday nights while I'm away on vacation for the rest of the month. So until June, every Thursday night will be hosted by James Evan Pollado. But tonight we're talking to Joshua Blakeney of Joshua That's J-O-S-H-U-A-B-L-A-K-E-N-E-Y.info. And uh, if you didn't quite catch that, don't worry, it will be up on the show notes as soon as I get the servers restored and my website back online, which I am trying my best to do behind the scenes. But on that note, we are talking to Joshua Blakeney, who is a master's student at the uh, University of Lethbridge in my home province of Alberta, Canada, and he is studying uh, the origins of the Global War on Terror academic debates and interpretive controversies and people might be able to cast their mind back to one of the first broadcasts we ever did on this uh this network where we were talking with him about michael Shermer and skepticism and all of the uh the very interesting things surrounding that but joshua i understand that recently you've come to start working with uh, press tv out of tehran perhaps you can start talking about that
1: well yes yeah, uh you know my uh, graduate studies, I was just going to say that I, I was uh, awarded the uh, Queen Elizabeth II Graduate in November 2011, and within days, Jonathan Kaye, the editor of the National Post, was assailing me, uh, saying that it was a waste of taxpayers' money. How dare this British guy come and purloin all the uh, tax dollars of hard-working Albertans to study conspiracy theories? And, of course, getting attacked by the National Post won me a lot of allies and friends because it's obviously the National Post. Uh, is not that popular with most Canadians, I would say. And as a result, I, it led me to get onto a number of media venues, including Press TV. I became a bit of a pundit uh, on Press TV's news analysis shows, and so I got to know the people there, very friendly people. They really humanized Iranians and made me even more committed to uh, averting a war with Iran. Uh, and I began to say, well, why don't I submit reports from Canada? After all, the Canadian government is so vehemently... And vociferously prosecuting this, what I would say is an Israeli policy, primarily to uh, attack Iran, which obviously goes against Canada's national interest. Um, it's something I'm committed to. Obviously, I have relatives in London, who uh, obviously Iran is, is not a broken back and dilapidated country like Saddam Hussein Iraq uh, was, which is why it was attacked. Iran can stand up for itself, and it can rain down missiles on U.S. bases in Japan, where you're located. It can rain down missiles on London where my relatives are located. So you and I, it would appear, have a personal glunt uh, uh, and we also obviously for humanitarian and moral reasons have an interest in averting this war with Iran. And so I'm quite happy to be uh, working for Press TV now, the voice of the voiceless, as it's uh, commonly known these days. Uh, obviously uh, the Canadian media seems to be always concerned with, Uh, drawing attention to the skeletons in the closet of the Iranian government, the skeletons in the closet of the Chinese government, anyone except Canada's own skeletons in their own closet. The the dirty laundry of Canada is usually addressed in a very ephemeral and uh, quick way by our media in Canada. And so I'm going to do my best to illuminate uh, many of the social problems that Canada has, which would then bring into question its foreign policy, which often involves sending tax dollars, uh, you know, hard-earned tax dollars, uh owned by the paid to the government by the canadian working class sending such dollars to uh sectarian groups in the middle east in order to foment destabilization i want to <clears throat> i want to bring a, bring a, uh you know bring attention to uh the possible motive for this which i think has a lot to do with uh pro israel lobbyists in north america having a stranglehold on uh on on middle east policy whether it's in the united states or canada uh, we all obviously know that Stephen Harper rose into prominence, and in, in Israel owned as much as 60% media and kind of legitimated and kind of sold Stephen Harper to us like a, a can of Coke. He kind of, you know, marketed, uh, his news outlets marketed Stephen Harper, and they supplanted the kind of indigenous conservatives as personified by more moderate people like David Orchard with this uh, extremist kind of clone of the Republican or Likud party. Um, and so I'm quite committed to doing that. I think it's beneficial to Canadians if I can uh, highlight uh, some of the injustices in this country which might uh, force the Canadian government to be a little more introspective and a little less uh, belligerent towards things that they have no interest in fomenting antagonism towards.
0: Well, any way that that would be possible to achieve that, I think, would be a good thing to pursue. And uh, as I understand it, the best way to catch your reports is on your channel, your YouTube channel, uh, Globalization 1492, if that's uh, if that's correct.
1: Yes, well, one of the things I really admire the Iranian government for, obviously its foreign policy is far more moral and just than uh, Western government's foreign policies. For example, Iran refuses to recognize apartheid Israel. Its policy is an exact... Uh, mirror image of its policy uh, towards apartheid South Africa, which was until that state ceases to be an apartheid state, we won't recognize it. The Iranian government supports the uh, legally hated uh, resistance to illegal uh, Israeli occupation in the south of Lebanon. Uh, it supports uh, the sovereignists who are trying to reclaim the Golden Heights, which was uh, pilfered from them in 1967, uh, and, and obviously to help Syria, Stay unified. It's a highly fissiparious country, Syria, with 18 ethnic groups that uh, unify. And there's currently uh, uh, an imperialist uh, destabilization effort going on in Syria in order to uh, weaken the only frontline state in the Middle East that refuses to have an Israeli embassy, refuses to uh, to uh, sell out the Palestinians. And at the moment, obviously, many liberals here have been hoodwinked into supporting that, which I'll get to later. But one thing I admire the Iranian government for as well is that they've revived the uh, non-aligned movement. And so you were mentioning my YouTube channels, and I just started a YouTube channel called uh, Non-Aligned Media, sort of a really good uh, vehicle for us to kind of support the what was formerly, uh, you know, championed as the decolonized, uh, you know, just after the end of World War II, uh, the, the countries that had been formerly colonized by countries like Belgium and France and Britain, uh, they said, well, we don't want to, you know, choose between this kind of false dichotomy of Soviet-style communism and U.S.-style capitalism. So they met in Bandung in 1955, and out of that grew the, the non-aligned movement. Um, and, you know, that kind of is largely, uh, you know, is largely on the pages of history now. President Ahmadinejad, the Iranian government, uh, expressing such sentiments, it certainly invigorates me. I feel that it's a good, a good um, paradigm to work through, the kind of idea that, you know, there may be problems in Syria and problems in Iran, but they're for the Iranian people and the Syrian people, respectively, to solve. It's not, there's no place for Western governments, you know, Uncle Sam and Johnny Ball or people like Benjamin Netanyahu trying to, you know, reshape the map or trying to intervene. You know, we often get told about, you know, the women in these countries, it, the men have to afford women's rights to them and so on. But actually, when you look into it, in the case of Syria, for example, it would appear that it's the so-called revolutionaries, these uh, reactionary theocrats who the women are scared of. And, in fact, it's the secular government of President Assad who is the uh, revolution from their perspective. And so uh, I'm, yeah, so my YouTube channel now, I've got a new one called Non-Online Media. My first interview was with um, uh You know, I just did an interview with Professor Delhi Rancor, a professor at the University of Ottawa, who uh, was persecuted from his job. They used the pretext that he had decided to give a whole class A's in order to remove the hierarchical grading method. He said his job wasn't to rank students, but he actually disclosed to me in this latest interview that it was because he was bringing Palestinian speakers into his classroom that led to this full tenured professor, one of Canada's top physicists, to be defenestrated from the University of Ottawa. And so, uh, as your fine example shows, we have the uh, means to uh, you know to do citizens journalism, to to be the media because the mainstream media is so monopolized by people who appear to have an agenda of wanting Israel's enemies to be destabilized in the Middle East, want the Lebanonization of the Middle East, doing what Israel did in Lebanon by fomenting sectarianism in order to uh, redraw the map of the Middle East and break down the Middle East into ethno-religious status. In my graduate studies, I happen to um, come across uh, a number of uh, scholarly works emanating from Israel. Uh, one, of course, is the famous paper by Oded Jinon, a strategy for Israel in the 1980s, in which he talked about it being rational for the Israeli government to vulcanize the Middle East, uh, break up the Middle East uh, into the uh, stateless, as the Ottoman Empire did. So some have coined the phrase, the Ottomanization of the Middle East. Uh, and, and so many people are looking at what happened in Iraq now, of course, scholarship of Professors Walter Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago and Harvard, who have actually challenged the hypothesis that the uh, illegal uh, invasion of Iraq was primarily motivated by oil interests, And their scholarship has been buttressed by that of James Petrus, a sociologist whose works were required reading during my undergraduate degree. And they have advanced a thesis along with Steven Snigold, Jonathan Cook, who, a, who, read a, who, who wrote a wonderful book which was aptly entitled The Clash of Civilizations to remake the Middle East. Such scholars have advanced the hypothesis that these wars of aggression, this odd attempt to, uh, you know, Destabilize and create civil war in the Middle East is primarily motivated by Israel. lobbyists, the kind of half a million uh, who are the vanguard movement in North America, who are of course radicalized due to the uh, real persecution of Jews in history. Uh, people like Paul Wolfowitz, of course, lost uh, lost many relatives in World War II, which radicalized them. Then he went on to lose his security clearance in the 1980s for passing classified documents to Israel, along with his fellow Zionist Douglas Feith. Uh, and, and so, uh, I've been kind of deviating from, um, from, from the mainstream left, even though I consider myself a leftist, someone who obviously, as a Marxist, must be opposed to ethnic obscurantism. And therefore, I've been, uh, you know, drawing attention to the, the scholarship which has emerged, the, the, offering this new hypothesis. And I think, uh, it, it can be very beneficial to the Palestinian cause if people in North America start to, uh, view the realities of Zionist power in America. <clears throat>
0: Very interesting. Well, a lot to talk about, and I would like to start getting into Syria specifically after this uh, break that we're coming up against right now. So anyone who would like to get in on tonight's conversation to talk with our guest, Joshua Blakeney of joshuablakeney.info, you can call in at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. And let's take a short break, but right after these messages, we'll be back to talk more with Joshua Blakeney. Radio Here on the Republic Broadcasting Network, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, which is currently offline, but will be back online soon enough. And uh, until then, you can check out the website of our guest, Joshua Blakeney, at joshuablakeney.info. Also his YouTube channels, not only Globalization1492, but also his new channel, Non-Aligned Media. And, uh, he's already got a few interviews and reports up there and, uh, it looks like it'll be very interesting. So, Joshua, let's start getting into Syria and let's start talking about some of the latest developments in, in the wake of the quote unquote failed Anon peace plan. We now have the, uh, the bombing in Damascus, which I thought was particularly interesting to note that within literally minutes of the uh, story breaking on the Newswires, they were already taking uh, Assad's claims that this was the work of terrorists and putting that in quotation marks, because the idea that the rebels might be killing civilians is an act of terrorism, I suppose, is just untenable from the mainstream media perspective. But let's, uh, let's start talking a little bit about what's happening in Syria right now.
1: Yes, well, so as I was adembracing, uh, I had this kind of preconceived framework uh, that I've kind of cultivated through my graduate studies, of uh, you know, kind of deviating from the left position, which is, oh, the war on terror, these assaults on the Middle East, the kind of ovation of American empire. They're a continuation of what went on in the Cold War. Uh, I'm of the school of thought, along with the scholars I adduced, such as Petrus, Nigosky, uh Walton Mearsheimer, uh, and a plethora of other scholarly works that have addressed this subject. Uh, I'm in line with them that actually what we've seen since 9-11 is a deviation from the traditional U.S. Middle East policy, as enshrined in what was called the Eisenhower Doctrine, and if you actually look at the uh, traditional U.S. Middle East policy, it was actually one of fomenting stability for oil markets because they wanted to prop up Arab strongmen or Arab strongmen rather in order to uh, facilitate the despoilation of the resources in the Middle East. But since 9/11, we've seen a deviation. That's ex- exemplified with if you look at Gulf War One as a historical example. Uh, George Bush Senior became the kind of enemy of the Zionist lobbies in the United States because he actually refused to take out Saddam Hussein after Gulf War No. 1. And in fact, his administration even egged on Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait, because Kuwait's relationship to Iraq is that of Northern Ireland to the Republic of Ireland. It was carved out by dubious Anglo-American imperialists back in the day. And so um, my preconceived framework is, therefore, that there is a deviation from the traditional U.S. colonial policies and the British colonial policies, too, of wanting to make stability in the Middle East for their resource interests. And that shift has moved towards what many have called the Sharon doctrine, uh, which is one of destabilizing and trying to balkanize the Middle East. And so, uh, obviously, uh, the events in Iraq vindicated that uh, that paradigm, that framework, because the events in Iraq largely actually jeopardized the interests of many oil companies, because it led to civil war in Iraq. Uh, and you know, like James Petras is a Marxist, and he went around and interviewed all these oil companies and was saying we were way- we were against the war in Iraq. It's crazy. Or if you look at like Iran. Like, why, what, how does that serve uh, U.S. oil interests, trying to destabilize Iran? It would surely be better um, to, to cooperate, to work with those governments and build a relationship with them. Actually, it's very interesting, in the 9-11 truth movement, you know, after the events of 9-11, we suddenly had this, oh, it's Brzezinski, Brzezinski, everything's to blame on Brzezinski, coming from people like Webster Tarkley and uh, and Professor Shostakovsky, too. But actually, if you actually stop and really go into what Brzezinski said, and obviously many people, I think, in the 9-11 truth movement haven't read Brzezinski, he says, he actually vehemently denounces, uh, in the most withering terms, uh, the Israeli foreign policy of trying to, uh, entice the American empire into going against its interests and destabilizing states in the region. Uh, Brzezinski says Russia and China are our real antagonists and therefore, uh, we should build alliances with countries like Iran. And so I believe it's important before we discuss specific instances such as the Syrian debacle to get the right framework. That is that there are two factions in the American empire. There's old money, personified by kind of Zygmunt Brzezinski, George Bush Sr., this kind of, uh, old, you know, a rational American empire builder, who of course could use market imperialist mechanisms, all kinds of mechanisms to control, uh, smaller countries. And there's this kind of nouveau riche, um, what James Petras calls the Zionist power configuration, as a, as a, as a separate faction in the American empire that has, a divergent interest from the traditional U.S. imperial policy. And so when we look at Syria, we see Suncor, all these oil companies withdrawing from Syria. I mean, I don't see how this is pursuing a U.S. imperial interest, although we constantly get told it's the CIA, it's the American empire. It becomes kind of a mantra, or it becomes, you know, the permanent war economy, like it's kind of inevitable. But actually, when you dig into who's actually been formulating these policies, lobbying for these policies going back to the 1980s, uh, Israel's uh, fingerprints are egregiously all over those policies. And so I believe that it's been a a three- or four-decade-old plan uh, formulated on the Israeli right. Of course, the Likud party didn't ascend to power until 1977, and we saw a kind of slew of uh, documents emanating from Israeli think tanks saying Israel should uh, shift from the old labor policy in Israel of trying to kind of negotiate with Arab leaders to one of treating Arabs as an enemy, ipso facto, and trying to subvert and destabilize them. And, of course, we know that the Israeli Mossad are the have a Ph.D. in post-black terrorism. Many missed when the Egyptian revolution was happening, that there was explosions going off in the Coptic church. Even the Jerusalem Post reported that the um, Egyptian Lawyers Guild had alleged that that was a Mossad operation. And I believe this is what we see going on in Syria. We have Halloween Kurds, Druze, uh Shiites, Sunnis, it's a highly fissiparous and uh, kaleidoscope, a patchwork of ethnic groups in Syria, and the Zionists are trying to vulcanize that country. And I think that we have to face this as leftists. We have to not be cowards and shy away from denouncing ethnic obscurantism, whether it's uh, German ethnic obscurantism, Africana ethnic obscurantism, or uh, Zionist obscurantism uh, as appears to be the, uh, the, the, the primary um, threat to the planet these days and I think that um very that interesting well we're
0: coming up on another break so we're going to have to leave it there for, for a second I have my own things to say about Brzezinski and his role in all of this but let's leave it there for just a moment we'll be right back after these messages with Joshua Blakeney
2: you're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth
0: You are listening to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are talking to Joshua Blakeney in uh, my home province of Alberta, Canada, where he is pursuing his graduate degree in globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge. And tonight we're talking about global geopolitics and how that ties into a number of uh, different things going on around the globe. So, Joshua, just to uh, to take you up on on one of the things that we were talking about in the previous segment there, Um, I think you do a disservice to the argument that Brzezinski has had a demonstrable effect on American foreign policy in the last few years. And as someone who actually has read what he's written, especially, of course, uh, the grand chessboard, I would say that he did a pretty good job of predicting the first major war of the so-called War on Terror in Afghanistan, which he located as one of the central um, pieces on the chessboard that he talks about as part of the, the Central Asian Caucasus region, which is absolutely central to any type of geostrategic domination of Eurasia. And he wrote about that at great length, and lo and behold, the very first war of this so-called war on terror happens to take place in that exact area, which I think you'd have to admit would be very difficult to locate in that nexus of the, uh, the Zionist influence on, on the neocon foreign policy, which was obvious and demonstrable, and as you say, obviously played out in Iraq and is playing out in Syria as we speak. But I think uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, the, the, the moves that I think Obama is making on, on this chessboard I think are quite different than what was taking place under the neocons and I think does have to be taken into account in that sort of uh, power block that we see forming between the NATO countries and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as one of the, uh, the key conflicts of the 21st century. So perhaps you could respond to some of that.
1: Oh, I agree with you that the Afghan war was a fruit of Brzezinski. I'm not, I'm not uh, disagreeing with you on that. But if we're talking about Syria and Iraq, uh, those were Zionist neocon policies uh, primarily. Uh, I believe that um, if you look at Obama, he took a lot of his orders from Rahm Emanuel. Uh, 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 Hillary Clinton takes uh, a lot of her orders from an individual named Jim Steinberg, who's an Israeli citizen also. So I think Obama... The states around. Uh, there's no doubt that this is uh, jeopardizing U.S. imperial interests. And don't believe me, just Brzezinski, he just it. He says a war with Iran would be crazy. And so I believe that while, while I do accept that, like I think you're, you're on to with uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, that is a fruit of Brzezinski. I think primarily the assault against Iraq and Libya and the other Middle East countries are hatched by Israelis, and of course, lots of scholarship on this subject. And I do believe that the U.S. Uh, is a kind of coloniser. to use James Petrus' phrase, the U.S. is acting against its own interests and actually acting against its imperialism. It'd be kind of like if you had New Zealand and what to do in the context of the British Empire. Um, and I think that there needs to be, that, that needs to be addressed. And I think that the old American builders uh, have been kind of overemphasized Leftists said to get called vittic by uh, criticizing the main, uh, the people who kind of created the bandwagon. Of course, all kinds of people jumped on that bandwagon, but my uh, thesis is that the, uh, the the bandwagon was forged by uh, people like Michael Ledeen, who of course was involved in Iran Contra, a credibly accused Mossad agent, uh, Douglas Price, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, Richard Pearl. These people aren't uh, American Empire builders, they're Israeli empire builders. and I think that um, that's where I've gone in my scholarship. and of course many people now do believe that 9/11 uh, did have Israeli involvement in may have even been primarily an Israeli uh, force flag operation because many would say that you know the American Empire did it really need to do that in order to control all these countries? I mean, I would say that you know the American Empire has kind of other mechanisms of being a global hegemon being exactly that the American Empire has uh, many mechanisms for controlling uh, those it would like to be its colonies. But if we look at Israel, it was in a predicament after the Cold War, because during the Cold War, Israel served U.S. imperial interests. After 1967, they proved themselves to be a formidable fighting force. They could crush Arab nationalism at the behest of the American Empire, just as the uh, ethnic nationalists in South Africa could crush uh, African self-determination. Of course, toward the end of the Cold War, the U.S. abandoned the Afrikaners, when it became inexpedient for the American Empire to buttress this reactionary and retrograde, retrograde settler colony in southern Africa. I think Israel, basically what we see with this Likudnik ne- neocon policy is the realization that the American Empire would be acting against its interests after the Cold War to continue, uh, you know, offer, uh, uh, offering such donations to Israel and its tax dollars, supporting Israel in the way that it is. And it would be far more rational for the American Empire, as Brzezinski says to cozy up with uh, governments like Iran. You know, Iran, uh, uh, its enemy is the Taliban also. And after 9-11, Iran offered to help the U.S. help the U.S. in its war on the Taliban. And so you get people like Brzezinski, who, who they're kind of, they call themselves an international relations scholarship, the realists, right? And that's what Walt and Mearsheimer, they kind of call themselves realists. Obviously, as a socialist, I do kind of challenge the concept of national interest, although I do see also that there are rational ways for empires to act, which would be, can illuminate and, and draw attention to through, through historical examples. And I think it is precedented that throughout human history, whenever there's been uh, an empire at its peak, as was the case with the American Empire in the Cold War, it's been supplanted by a, a new hegemon that's emerged. And, you know, if you look at the secessionists in the British Empire who defeated and formed the United States of America, a lot of their literature, because Professor Hall, my mentor, is an expert in U.S. and Canadian history on this, you know, um, a lot of their literature, they were saying, well, we just want to take care of the Americas. We don't want to get told, to do, get told what the trouble of it. And I think that's the same with Israel. I think they don't like the U.S. buttressing Arab strongmen in the region because it actually poses a threat to Israel, as was uh, exemplified when Saddam Hussein fired scud missiles at Israel in 1990, and he was, of course, supporting the Palestinian resistance, uh, and therefore he had to be taken out. And it's well documented that those who lobbied uh, and prosecuted this war on terror I found a book in my graduate studies, you know, I I undertook the intellectual exercise of looking up what Netanyahu had authored, and I found a book called uh, Terrorism, How the West Can Win, written by, or edited rather, by by Benjamin Netanyahu, in which it uses all the discourse and vocabulary that didn't enter our lexicon until after 2001. Um, And so increasingly, uh, there's a kind of new uh, thesis emerging, uh, which draws attention to the Israeli fingerprints and the, the, the deviation of the American empire, from traditional U.S. Middle East policy of trying to Arab strongmen. And I think that's the context within which we should situate the destabilization of Syria, and that's certainly how I've come to take an interest in that, in my journalistic capacity.
0: Well, then, I, I guess perhaps we don't have a fundamental disagreement, because certainly I do agree that uh, the current wars of aggression and the uh, threats against Syria and Iran certainly do not play into the Brzezinski model, and in fact play against that model, because... Certainly, uh, it, it does tend to drive Iran into the, uh, further into the arms of people who would otherwise not be uh, so receptive to them, including uh, China and even India, getting more and more involved with each other through various pipeline projects and through overt involvement in things like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which I think does tend to go directly against what the Brzezinski model is, which is to try to set these people up against each other. And to let them defeat themselves. So I think uh, I think you're right in that assess- assessment. And definitely, there is no doubt there's a demonstrable uh, a Zionist lobby and an Israeli lobby in uh, in the American government that's directing these types of attacks on Syria at the moment. So so where do you see this going in Syria uh, in the in the foreseeable future? I think uh, we can see the writing on the wall in terms of this so-called non peace plan. But uh, but where do you think this is actually going to end up?
1: Well, it's well documented that Assad is loved by a significant portion of his people. Uh, professor Mohammed al masri who's currently involved in the presidential politics of Egypt, he's over there lobbying for different policies. He's a Canadian professor. He doesn't like Assad, and he even conceded to me that at least 50% of Syrians uh, really like President Assad. Uh, my, the people I interviewed here in Calgary uh, for Press TV, I met them, you know, through the through the activist community. Actually, one genuine skeptic in the activist community here in Calgary actually went to meet the pro-Assad Syrians of which there are in Calgary the people who like President Assad and they said that you know in their view 80% of Syrians so 50 to 80% is my ballpark figure I'm right? like Assad and it's also exemplified by the protest that you see in Syria and so I would say Syria is the last bastion of Arab dignity of the kind of old Arab nationalism plan, uh, that used to be by, by NASA. against uh Imperialist intrigue and subvention in the Middle East, uh, and I really hope that uh, that you know the the counter-revolution that people in North America bring, who's into supporting, very very sad. When I see left-wing people getting pulled and okay. supporting imperialist agendas, and when the uh, you know uh, uh, so-called uh, human rights protest uh, Syria, and, wait, in Syria, which was flag and they used to, uh, you know the imperialist flag. And we, and are, and okay,
0: Joshua, you're breaking offshore. up a little there. Perhaps we can try uh, reconnecting with you behind the scenes. Um, the the connection's getting pretty broken up there, so uh, I'll just give you a moment to talk to the producer uh, off-air there. But but let's. Uh, we've got a couple of callers waiting on the line, so why don't we bring up Bill from Idaho, who's been waiting patiently. Bill, thanks for joining us tonight.
3: Well, thank you so very much. It's absolutely wonderful, the uh, analysis and the uh, insight uh, that uh, that occurs by a human. We would mention that again. We're calling from the back of Blackwater Triple Canopy, where they stole Edgar Steele's legacy. And yet, at the same time, I have every hope or uh, observation that you, with the new media, have created a total success for righteousness was hoping that possibly somehow you could ask Mr. Blakely, considering the Black Eagle sorry, balloon has already gone up. There was a overcast before there was paperclip, and therefore I was wondering his best solution set, considering there's a large amount of the common law grand jury that's sitting on where zip code Nuremberg, and four five is
0: well. I'm not sure I understand the parameters of the question. Perhaps you can talk about some of the the things that you're you're mentioning there. Um,
3: well, uh, considering that were small results or the diminished results of the primary Nuremberg that occurred, nothing but continued uh, sedition and treason, if not misprisoner treason at a local level, yet needing to completely rebuild upon the. Uh, Upon the, uh, Gandhian, uh, uh, Ox- Occam Razor d- discussion of the survival of a society by, uh, our friend and early giants that stood, uh, pointy of what would become of a society by its common response to disaster.
0: Well, I'm not really sure what to say about that. There's a lot to uh, to take in there. Uh, Josh, did you hear any of that?
1: I heard about ten seconds of it, and then I was <laughs> okay. uh, discussing things with your producer.
0: All right. Okay. Well, sorry about that, uh, Bill. Uh, we've got you to go back com- on the line. You would compress it. I'm sorry. Hello. Yes. Hello. Yes,
1: I got. Sorry, my phone line was uh, having problems, and so I had to go behind the scenes and uh, discuss matters with James's producer.
3: Well, it's such an honor and a pleasure pleasure to be able to hear you both considering one of the bravest young gentlemen in this community is a private micro, a retired U.S. groundwater Navy, and uh, he put it up out of his back pocket to get your message out to the rest of the world.
0: Well, it's going. good to hear that people are spreading spreading the word about this broadcast and the other ones at the Republic Broadcasting Network. So, uh, Bill, thank you so much for your call tonight.
2: And, Could uh, I ask
3: a follow-up real quick? Yeah, I go ahead. He only had 10 seconds, and it wouldn't be mm-hmm. fair. But considering that we would like to hear so much more, uh, you as was Luma to balance off the uh, young princess conundrum in the uh, Occidental East. Okay,
0: Bill, we're going to have to leave it there. I can't quite make out what you're talking about. But uh, yeah. we have another caller on the line as well. We have Lark in Texas. So let's bring Lark up in the conversation. Lark, thanks for calling in tonight.
2: Oh, hi. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, very interesting Death, How are you, Joshua? Uh, yeah, hi. How's it going? Well, great. I, I was curious, um, in... Uh, um, Academia today and in the circles you run in, are they still promoting uh Huntington's clash of civilization as a uh, as a quote unquote battle which must be won by the West? And uh secondly, uh are you a promoter for uh communitarian ideology in the main and do you not see that Netanyahu is merely promoting one half of that uh dialectic?
1: I'm not sure I understand the second question, but the first question, yes, uh, academicians have cashed in on the war on terror, uh, predicated on the myth of a uh, threat being posed to North Americans uh, by Islamist terrorists. You're more likely to die in the bath or from lightning based on U.S. statistics than from terrorism, but that uh, obviously isn't a piece of evidence that is invoked in academia very much because it defunds academics who have... Made a career. Apparently, my, my professor went to the UK recently. Apparently, terrorism studies is proliferate campuses with uh, lucrative by the usual suspects to create the myth of terrorism. Uh, of course, then we see uh, groups like the English Defense League uh, turning up with Israeli flags, you know, at, at racist rallies with uh, Israel lobbyists, you know, hot on their heels uh, in alliance with them. Uh, promoting a class, kind of importing a clash of civilization to Britain, and it's pretty much the same here in North America. Academics uh, obviously doing very well by going along with the uh, illusion uh, that, that the events of 9-11 let, let loose.
2: <clears throat> well, wouldn't you agree that this is a terrible development, a continuing development, I should say?
1: Yes, yes, uh, I believe so. I mean, the thing is, it's interesting because in the Cold War, they kind of actually had an enemy, right, the Soviet Union, and yet the the, the Church Committee, Senator Frank Church, did the Church Committee hearing, and I believe he, he deduced that uh, as many as five thousand university professors were uh, in some way collaborating with the CIA, uh, and, and and so you know that's when they had an enemy. Uh, but now, now when the enemy is largely an illusion, or it's largely my enemy's enemy is my friend, but rather, my enemy is my friend from the perspective of Western government, uh, then, you know, it's quite astounding that they can get away with this because they don't actually have an enemy. It's it's an illusion. And so, but, you know, they, I think it's the case that if you repeat, uh, you know, a lie enough, people will start to believe it. And I think the problem with many journalists and, and academicians in North American campuses is they've actually begun to believe their own propaganda, which is a, a dangerous uh, situation to get in.
2: Now, was your university touched by, uh, for instance, the uh, communitarian network? Uh, and, um, do you discuss, uh, do you discuss, uh, communitarian ideology in your circles presently?
1: Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what communitarian ideology is, but my university, my Dean of Graduate Studies was called, uh, by the National Post, a journalist who is a former mosque called Michael Ross, who writes for the National Post and, and was berated and, 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 was encouraged to call me an anti-Semite because I draw attention to the sources that, uh, indicate that Israel was involved in 9-11. So it's not been that, that good. You know, obviously, you, you win a lot of allies when you get attacked in the mainstream media. But it's, you know, something that is humbling. It makes you, you know, when you're in being smeared and, you know, they're quoting a Holocaust revisionist and not, put, not really uh, highlighting who actually wrote that paragraph and illuminating, uh, you know, some comment about gas chambers or something on the same article. So people who glance at that article will think that's me uh, when I'm trying to seriously uh, deconstruct the most significant historical occurrence in recent it's an subject to deal with in an academic context, but you know, nine eleven is highly interdisciplinary and so on and so. Maybe okay, we're I'm gonna have to
0: leave it there we're right up against the break, but we'll be right back right after these messages. Here we are in the final minutes of Corporate Report Radio on this Thursday night edition of the broadcast. And tonight we're talking to Joshua Blakeney of JoshuaBlakeney.info. And we have Lark in Texas holding on the line. So, Lark, any final thoughts you'd like to wrap up with?
2: I'd just like to uh, uh, extend my uh, uh, thanks to uh, Bill in Idaho and to the two of you gentlemen. This is an interesting discussion, and I hope we can uh, continue it more in the future. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for holding on. Thank you for your call. Thank you for your input, as always. So, Joshua, turning to the uh, the final couple of minutes here of our conversation, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on or that you'd like to bring to listener's attention tonight?
1: Well, I just uh, hope that the left wakes up and stops being hoodwinked into supporting imperialist wars of aggression under the guise of, you know, humanitarian... Uh, and uh, to say, I believe that uh, we should uh, isolate what's happening in Syria from the broader Arab Spring, Obviously, it uh, had like 5% popularity, uh, whereas uh, President Assad, the political realities are far more nuanced. Uh, and uh, I believe that for many Syrians, the revolution, the anti-imperialist struggle, is actually personified by President Assad. And we kind of see that coming through from who you and I have both interviewed. And so uh, I, it's, it's very important that people actually, um, you know, look into what's going on in the Middle East. It's a complex reality. And treat Israel with the contempt that we would treat as leftists, we would treat uh, ethnic supremacists in South Africa or ethnic supremacists in Germany or ethnic su- supremacists in the American South. Uh, and I think if we treat Israel as a kind of nascent empire and emerging, uh, you know, an emerging superpower, then we can understand a great deal about what's actually going on. And I think that it's important for us not to hide behind generalizations, which I see many people doing from time to time. You know, uh, of the American empire, the permanent war economy, they can be useful as general con- concepts. But I think when you get into who are the individuals pursuing these agendas and formulating these policies, creating the bandwagon for all the opportunists to jump on, uh, we see that many roads lead back to Tel Aviv. And I think that's important for us to, uh, to, to do, do our homework on this. And then, then we can understand what's going on. Because I think it's such a shame if, obviously, Syria gets balkanized and they kill each other off. It would be great for Israel. Because then the, um, Arabs and the people of the Middle East will be fighting each other rather than unifying to resist imperialist encroachment. And I do think that, um, there is going to have to be a a shift in, in people's paradigm to understanding, to understanding the realities of, uh, of, of the geopolitics of the Middle East. And I'm trying to do my best to, uh, to address that. That's kind of what I'm dedicating morning, noon and night to doing.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more that we do need to focus on the specificities and, and name names and tr- try to get to the bottom of things like that. So can you give us an indication of what you're working on next for either Press TV or for your own reporting?
1: Uh, I'm actually going over to Vancouver. I've got a TV uh, show I'm going on and, uh, and a radio show, kind of fairly mainstream radio show in Vancouver. But I think I'm, I'm going to be taking up the Syrian cause. Uh, to defend Syrian sovereignty, to try and talk about the history of the non-aligned movement, to, you know, as I've kind of tried to do on this show. This is actually my second radio interview of the day, so I'm sorry if I am a bit groggy. Um, but um, anyway, so, yeah, so I'm, I think I'm going to... Because really it fits within the kind of framework of the, uh, you know, the analyses that I've been bringing forth anyway, that I think that the agenda in the Middle East is a deviation from the Eisenhower doctrine, from the traditional U.S.-Middle East policy. Uh, and I think if you understand... Uh, that framework, then you can understand what's going on in Libya and in, uh, in Syria. And if we understand that Western, like the British government, the French government, the U.S. government have their Middle East policies uh, basically formulated for them by pro-Israel lobbyists, we can understand the extent to which we're kind of facing uh, a fascist uh, a human being, and that we have to do our best to, to recognize fascism when we see it, regardless of the ethnic group from whom it's emanating.
0: All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Joshua Blakeney, Blakeney.info. thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: Great pleasure. Thanks for having
0: me. All right, and thank you all to all of you out there for listening and to Bill and Lark for phoning in. And until tomorrow night, 23 hours from now, thanks for listening and take care.